Oh, hi, I'm Anton Posniak from the Chelsea and Westminster Hospital in London, and I'm here in Brisbane at IAS 2023. I'm here with Laura Waters, who's going to introduce herself, and we're going to talk about one or two of the highlights of this conference, which have been quite an interesting, it's been quite an interesting time for us, hasn't it, Laura? It really has, and hi, everyone. I'm Laura Waters, uh, HIV doctor from Central London also. So, Laura, we didn't have that many randomized clinical trials. I think the first one, just to, to say, is Reprieve. We, you've done a podcast with Beatrice Grinstein, who was one of the investigators on Reprieve. And of course, a shout out to Esteban Martinez uh, and the Spanish sites and their, and their participants, because they contributed greatly to this study. Uh, but, but Laura, just the bottom line for Reprieve, because people can yeah. listen to the podcast and get the details. Bottom line, people at low cardiovascular disease risk, just above 4%, randomized to pitavastatin or placebo, study stopped early because there was a 35% reduction in cardiovascular events. It was a big study, more than 7,000 participants. There's lots of questions, but the benefit was even greater than you'd expect from the LDL reduction. So this seems to be about inflammation. All those analyses are pending. A really strong effect in women uh, who may be particularly underserved by our current risk calculators. So this study is going to run and run in terms of the results. Yeah, there's lots more to come. And I think one of the points that came out of the podcast is this is now going to be part of a, of a, a comprehensive risk assessment for cardiovascular disease, even in people in no risk. And I think that we're, we're, we're going to be more and more involved. Who's going to do it, how it's all going to be done is going to be worked out. But listen to the podcast because I think there's so much in that for you to enjoy and understand. Now, the other randomized trial was the uh, Islatrovir Duravarine versus Bictavi in Naives that was presented by Jürgen Rockstraw. And what were your thoughts about that in the end, Laura? Yeah, I mean, this is the first data we've seen for Duravarine's Latrovir first line in a phase three study. Um, we've seen the suppressed switch studies, two of them at Croy earlier this year. And it worked. I mean, you know, the efficacy was, was good, as we'd expect, based on the modelling and all the work that's been done so far. I think for me, obviously, this is the higher dose. We know because of the impact of Islatrovir on total lymphocyte and CD4 counts. The program was paused. The new dose going forward is 0.25 milligrams. This was the 0.75. So how much we can be confident the results will be the same, we, we need to see the results with the current dose. I, the, the risk for me is is the genetic barrier. I just, it was only one. So there was one virologic failure in the Duravarine Latrovir arm. There are actually, I think, four or five in the Bictavi arm. The difference was the person who experienced failure in the Duravarine Latrovir arm developed resistance to both drugs. The four people who had um, virologic failure on Bictavi, no resistance. Now, I don't want to over-egg N equals one, but what do you think? Well, I mean, the, the issue for me was that they, uh, the person who failed on Duravarine is Latrovir and the higher dose of Latrovir had over a million copies to yeah. start with. And I just wonder whether most of us would feel if we had a patient in that sort of threshold that we think that uh, this sort of two drugs with a relatively low barrier to resistance would be the way to go. Yeah. So it may be that you know we have to think a little bit more, we need more data about thresholds. But yeah. um, And also we saw the 184 uh, mutation come out yeah. with that patient, so to Islatrovir. Uh, and I, I just think that uh, we, we need now to look at more data. And I think they're going to also talk about the weight gain data at some yes. stage. Yeah. So we will have all that later on. But it's, uh, it's nice to see that, that we got some data. 
Now, mentioning weight gain, uh, I, there was data on weight gain here, but I, I think that um, we had from Grace McConsky some data, uh, which was, was quite interesting because I remember a few years ago in Croy when she presented data on yep. integrases causing weight gain, yep. and now the, it seems like the pendulum's gone all absolutely, the other way. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's interesting because uh, we also um, saw a presentation from Francois Venter, of course, who presented the original advance findings, who's also, you know, people review their opinions as evidence emerges, but they've both shifted to that older drugs clearly are causing some weight suppression. Whether that means that the newer drugs are causing zero excess weight change, I'm still slightly on the fence there. Um, but it certainly seems that it's a switching away from tenofovir disoproxil, it's switching away from efavirenz where you're seeing weight difference. Otherwise, switching to dravirenz latrovir, for example, compared to Bictavi, you saw the same weight trajectories. So I, th- I think this story that it's mainly the older drugs, which Anton, I know that you, you've been supporting for certainly longer than I have, it's taken me a longer time to come around. But yeah, it's more and more evidence in that direction, isn't it? Yeah, and I, and I think... Uh... Uh, Francois now thinks that quite strongly. I, I, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but when he when he talks about yeah. it, he thinks about the weight suppressive effect of efavirenz and TDF, which was quite marked in the yeah. advanced study. But the other thing he showed today was hypertension. Yes. So that it seemed like the blood pressure over time went up mostly in the dolutegravir yep. arms yep. Yep. compared with the efavirenz yep. arms. But there's probably a caveat there, isn't there, about well, why that happened? Oh, it's so difficult, isn't it? Well, firstly, there's the, the, the confounder of, of weight. So, so what weight is, is driving hypertension. There was the, um, other analyses where they've adjusted for BMI change and are still perhaps showing a degree of hypertension associated with uh, integrases and possibly TAF. But uh, it, it's, it's how do you measure it? I mean, you know, where, when you send off a, a blood cholesterol level or a viral load, it's pretty accurate. But how standardised some of the blood pressure monitoring is ever going to be um, in, in the sort of standard trial, or certainly in the cohorts in clinical practice. Well, that's why I think the um, RESPOND cohort, which when they tried to adjust for BMI and still showed an effect of uh, hypertension uh, and integrases, I mean, the point is that that may not be the best measure, yeah. that waist circumference, because visceral fat is much more dependent to cause your blood pressure go up and your weight gain per year. And they are going to reanalyze that. Yeah. Also, there's some causal analysis that the Swiss have done, yeah. which showed no association, but Respond haven't done that analysis. Yeah. So they're going to do that now. So we end up in the realm of statistical analyses, which is very, you know, comp- and as well, as you say, because it's all from different clinics. Absolutely. The, the, the standardization of the blood pressure we don't know. Yeah. But in the in advance, at least it was in, you know, it showed the trend roll up yes. of hypertension yeah, yeah. and the trend up of weight. Yeah. Uh, and so, I mean, my feeling is, and so is many's, is that they're probably very, very interrelated. Absolutely. But who knows if there's a a degree of something going on with the drug. And I think it's so important you brought up Respond and and Swiss cohort, because obviously there there was quite a lot of panic when Respond showed previously that integrases may be associated with excess cardiovascular events. And then the Swiss cohort didn't show that. In their unadjusted analysis, they did. Their adjusted one, they didn't. Firstly, Swiss cohort adjusted for more factors, including things like uh, statin and antiplatelet use, um, but also sort of family history. But they used a completely, I'm entering the realms of stuff I don't know about, but a different statistical analysis. And actually, I felt a little bit today with a response analysis, it would be easy for people to leave with the message that integrase inhibitors cause hypertension. And again, more panic, more knee-jerk reactions. And considering their previous findings have potentially been refuted by a different type of analysis, I think that should have been presented with a bit more 
humility? Yeah, so do I. I think they should have had a lot more caveats around that because all the other studies we saw, it appeared it was related to weight gain. Uh, now, the, the interesting thing was, uh, coming back to the weight gain, there was a study uh, by Dr. Short when he got patients who had, 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 made, had excess weight gain, of, of uh, 10% weight gain, and he switched them to Darunavir, uh, Cobicistat, TAF, FTC, or kept them on the integrate. Yes. And again, it, they, there was absolutely no difference yep. if you did that. And one of the, I thought well, your comment was excellent, that actually uh, he was switching because the drugs actually, actually the drugs didn't yep. cause weight gain. Yep. And therefore, if they didn't cause weight gain, switching them is not going to reduce yep. the weight gain. I mean, yeah. as I put it, you, you, I, I was polite. I'm getting more polite in my old age, I hope, <laughs> Anton. But I said, I did say you, you came up with a very specific conclusion because his conclusion was, Integrase related weight gain is not reversible. And yeah, as yeah. you say, I made the point that maybe it wasn't integrase related. Yeah. Well, I thought that he, he, the other thing that could have been cruel as well to say was he actually did uh, try to use um, boosted PIs as a, as a weight reduction drug. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, so there's another piece of the jigsaw yeah. that's, been, that's been filled in. I just wanted to then comment on, on our final study, really, that, um, I mean, there's plenty here for you to, to, for people to look at, was because we haven't really covered all the prevention stuff that's gone on. But the two things that I just want to finish with, BNABs was big here, right? But it was really a review of all the data rather than anything majorly new on BNABs that we saw. I mean, yeah, again, as the constantly pessimistic person in the room, we're just seeing more and more studies uh, edging towards no efficacy. Yeah. I just, it's, and I, I really want BNAMs to work, but I just, there, there's so many challenges. Um, we, we didn't see anything new. We saw some great summaries and really fascinating summaries. And there are a lot of people in the field who are more optimistic than I am, but there's so much about them. I thought the one line that was great from, from the plenary this morning was BNAMs, today's BNAMs neutralize yesterday's virus. Yeah, yeah. And that's the problem. And that may ca carry on forever, yeah. that sort of statement. So finally, one bit of data which was very intriguing was uh, a, a group of patients who, were, who had, had or didn't have an M184IV mutation who were switched to Duvato from Bictavi. And they didn't have any virological failures with resistance, did they? Again, this was another example of a study with dare I suggest conclusions that were more grandiose than the sample size warranted. So yeah, I mean, they had 50 people without historic 184VI, 50 with, and outcomes were great. Devato worked. And we've seen this emerging from other cohorts that historic 184 and this five-year cutoff seems to have emerged from some of those cohorts, uh, that, that it may become less important. That would make sense, you know, that viral reservoir is still evolving, that these mutations fall back to such low levels, they're not important. Uh, beyond that, I think it's, I'd still be cautious. There were some really good points raised in the Q and A, um, and I think it's I think it's difficult to say. And I think if it's the best option for someone with an old one eight four, I think we can say now it's it's probably okay to try. But there's that balance of risk. And the other thing to point out though is the fifty people with historic one eight four, only fifteen of them had the one eight four on the proviral sequencing. So if we are to say that actually current proviral DNA may be more meaningful than old, old, old RNA uh, results, then basically we've shown that 15 people did okay. It's a bit too small for me. Yeah, and the other question about is, you could look at it from the other end and say, is proviral any use at all in yeah, these patients? Absolutely. Because if they all do yeah. well, what's the use of measuring <laughs> it? So you could say that, but obviously the follow-up, it would be nice to have three or four years follow-up yeah. for these. 
The the other point I think I think with this in the end is there are alternatives yeah. for these patients, yeah. right? So I agree with you that yeah. I, it's a bit of a it's it's a if it's the, as you say the only thing to go to it's yeah. something worth doing. But otherwise, uh, I think that I I personally would probably wait for better yeah. data. And I mean to be fair to him, uh, Dr. Blick, he did say that he they did. need they need a really big study if people are going to do he this. He did in the Q and A. He didn't uh, on his conclusion yeah, slides. No. And the interesting thing is that there are data to show that the, the 3TC mutation can disappear from the yeah. reservoir over time. It yeah. can take several years. And I wondered whether what they pick up on proviral DNA is from junk virus that doesn't replicate, Absolutely. or maybe that's it. Absolutely. But all those questions have not been answered by this study. Absolutely. I think the, the, for me, the thing that he said that will stay with me most is because we, we talk, we think about cost in the UK, yeah. of course. You know, to me, you know, the difference between tenofovir, emtricitabine, and lamivudine as the backbone, as it were, that it's, it's a few quid a month. Of course, a few quid a month at global level is a huge amount yeah, of money. Yeah, yeah. And when he pointed out just how much less expensive doluteglamivudine could be than TLD, uh, you know, it did really strike me how privileged I am. And that's why coming to conferences like this and a reminder of the challenges that face people globally is, is so important. Well, thanks for that, Laura. We've tried to cover a few of the most interesting topics here. But as I say, there's lots more going on at this conference. And uh, it's been a, a pleasure and privilege to be with you today, Laura, to discuss these. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, thank you so much for having me.